verses 1 through I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 6 here, the letter to the church in Sardis. And as you're turning there, I was reflecting upon one of the key words in this letter. I'm trying to think of how to, how to open this sermon, and, and an illustration came from a book I'd been reading recently called Drunk Tank Pink. It's a fascinating book by Adam Alter. Uh, he points out the, in the beginning, the first chapter, this curious phenomenon known as nominative determinism. Nominative determinism. It's the idea that our names can often have a profound effect upon how we live. And so our name, in a sense, predetermines the outcome of either who we'll be, what we'll do, what we're fascinated by. And he gives several examples. He shows how people are oftentimes preoccupied by ideas that are related to their names. So Chief Justice of England and Wales from 2008 to 2013 was named Justice Igor Judge. Uh, his colleague was Justice John Laws, who was on the Court of Appeals from 1999 to 2016. The fastest man in the world is named Usain Bolt. So if sprinting hadn't worked out for him, maybe he could have been a good mechanic. Um, but the most fascinating one that he gave of the examples was um, this article that was written by two urology experts who wrote an article about painful urination for the New Scientist magazine. Their names were Drs. A.J. Splatt and D. Whedon. Come on, that's funny. I mean... Alter concludes, it's tempting to dismiss these anecdotes as scattered coincidences, but researchers have shown that our names take root deep within our mental worlds, drawing us magnetically toward the concepts they embody. Well, whether it's coincidence or not, the key words in our passage this morning is name. You find it four times in the Greek. In verse 1, it's translated as reputation. You have the reputation or you have the name of being alive. And then it's found again in verse 4 and then twice in verse 5 translated there as name. While our name in this life might bear some significant weight in how our interests develop or how others perceive us, it's far more important how God views our name. Nominative determinism has absolutely no effect upon God's perspective of who we are. The way God views us has everything to do with whether we are united to the one whose name is above all names. If we've bowed at the foot of Jesus. And so this fifth letter provides the climax of the three middle churches who have been kind of described as compromised. Right, it's the, there's been this escalation of compromise until we get to Sardis, which is the peak or the pinnacle of that compromise. Uh, the two previous churches were specifically rebuked for tolerating false teaching. Pergamum was holding on to the name of Christ in one hand while holding on to false teaching in the other. Thyatira was growing but seriously compromised by the teaching of Jezebel who encouraged integrating with pagan trade guilds, as we talked about last week. Here in Sardis, there is no mention of false teachers at all. 
but they have become so complacent that they're about to lose everything. And as we'll see, I believe that there's a connection between their compromise and the compromise of the previous churches. They were likely struggling from the exact same temptations, which was idolatry and sexual immorality. But they had gone so far beyond the other churches that, they, that Christ describes them as dead. And so again, this is a, a sobering text, but there's also hope. Hope if they would repent and return to their Lord and Savior. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter written to a church in compromise, a church that had been at one point true and holding on to the name of Christ and faithful in the midst of darkness. And yet they have become so compromised by catering to the culture that they're described here as spiritually dead. Lord, may that not be true of us. May, may your glory not depart from us as we see it departing in Ezekiel 10 from the temple. Rebellion and idolatry is in all of our hearts. Lord, we are prone to wander as we'll sing in response after this sermon. And so we need your spirit. We need to hold fast to Christ, and we are enabled to do that only by your spirit. So fill us with that strength even now that these warnings that do apply to us as well will not ultimately be true of us because of the work of Christ in our hearts. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name. Out of the book of life, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's holy word. So again, Jesus opens with the image of him, uh, a description of himself that is a reflection of the vision of the Son of Man we saw in chapter 1. Here, the images of him holding the seven spirits and seven stars. And he's writing here to the dead church that it might find revival as they look to him, as they are willing to submit to their sovereign Lord. His Holy Spirit is at work in and through the preaching of his word. And as they listen to this letter that is read to them aloud by their pastor, they might respond to that in obedience and repentance and faith. 
only because of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit that is described here as being in the hands of Jesus, who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars in his hands. While they, or the question is, will they heed that warning, the warning of this letter, despite the unexpected nature of its purpose? At one time, Sardis was a flourishing city located along an active highway near the Pactolus River. This river was known for its gold. It was a source of gold. The, the story of King Midas and his golden touch, he had to be healed by washing in the Pactolus River, which is why there was so much gold dust in the river. It made that region wealthy for a long time. They prospered. But the wealth and the splendor of this city has now faded considerably as John is writing to them. Uh, it's a population roughly 60,000. It did have a temple of Artemis, and although it was smaller than the one in Ephesus, uh, it was the eighth largest temple in the Greek world, but unfortunately, they were never able to finish the project. What they had begun was, was stalled along the way, and as the region uh, was under attack at various times, uh, they were unable to complete the project. And, and I think it relates to how Jesus is writing to the church. Some of this, the imagery of the history of the city is exactly why he uses the language that he does to the church in Sardis. And we'll point those out along the way. But like Ephesus and Smyrna, Sardis earned the title of Neokoros, right? The, they were temple wardens. Uh, the title that Rome gave to those who were particularly good at honoring the emperor. And so apparently there was a large population of Jews there as well. The third largest building in Sardis was a synagogue. And although the current remains there only date back to the 4th century AD, they do reveal some telling features about the level of compromise in Sardis among the Jewish community. Uh, the, the central table was engraved with an eagle on its base, which would have been the symbol of Rome at that time. It was a symbol of Rome's dominance. There were statues of lions that decorated the main hall of the temple, which may have been taken from the shrine of Sybil because whenever there was a, a, a display of Sybil, oftentimes she was flanked by lions. And so the, there's probably the assumption that, that the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, was compromised with the culture. They were using idolatrous images, much like we saw taking place in Ezekiel. They were full of images that were abominations to the Lord. And so it was in this context where hypocrisy could flourish. We'll look at the first three verses here, and then we'll, so we'll break this passage down into two sections, verses one through three, and then four through six. The first three verses in your outline are the empty name of the unrepentant. The empty name of the unrepentant. Well, if the, if the Jewish synagogue is any indication of the character of monotheism in Sardis, then we can safely assume that Christianity would have been thriving there. That's 
that's consistent with the text, right? Many probably saw the church as a model of growth in Asia Minor. Publishers were likely hounding the local pastor to share his methodology so that other churches might watch closely and mimic the same kind of uh, attitude toward the culture. Surely, the pastor there was on the conference circuit sharing his strategy throughout the region. That's why they had a reputation. They had a name that they were alive. Everyone looking at them from the outside thought, this is a flourishing community. They're doing everything right. They're doing everything well, and God is blessing them. Let's, let's figure out what their secret is. Let's copy it. You have a name that you're alive. Right? They appeared healthy and strong in numbers. They probably thought that they were making a positive impact upon the culture around them. They thought their reputation reflected well upon the name of Christ. So his assessment of them, when it comes back to them and it's not so glowing, would have been shocking. We see there in verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Your works show that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. On the exterior, you check all the right boxes, but Jesus sees their interior. This is the first church that doesn't receive an opening commendation. Every other church, despite all of their failures and problems, Jesus always opens with a commendation for them, encouraging them, continue to do these things. Right? I'm, I'm thankful for these, way, for these things. But when he's writing to Sardis, he doesn't give them anything, at least in the opening, that is commendable. As Michael Wilcox says, in name, she is alive, but in fact, she is dead. She may have a prestigious name, but it's empty. The, they enjoyed the kind of, of favor that they did in their context because they fit in perfectly. Instead of challenging or subverting the culture, they complimented it. It was perfectly fine to live as they lived within the dark pagan culture that surrounded them. It was nominal Christianity at its finest. It was a Christianity that really didn't call them to give much, to sacrifice much. They continued to interact and engage in their culture just like everyone else. It improved their business by engaging with false gods and celebrating faiths in these trade guilds, and there would be no, no sense of compromise in their faith with the triune God. I think Christianity in America may know something of this experience, right? It's a faith that is professed but not truly possessed. And so they receive a commandment from Jesus to wake up. Wake up. They had fallen asleep. The light of their lamp had grown dim. They must strengthen whatever remains if they are there to survive. And at least there is an acknowledgement here of somewhere to begin. That they can start with just that spark 
It's that dim hope that remains. She possessed something with which she could revive the strength of her testimony. It's similar to what we'll see in Ezekiel chapter 37. It'll take a while to get there. But God will call the prophet to go into the valley of dry bones and prophesy over the dead bones, saying, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. They're dead, but but if the Spirit is at work, they might hear. They might be revived while preaching God's word. In chapter 37, verse 10, we read, The breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. So that's the picture of the kind of spiritual revival that was needed in Sardis. A genuine move of the Spirit in the hearts of those who had fallen asleep, those who needed to wake up. And so her works were incomplete, just like the temple of Artemis. That's, that's the description. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And you can look over at that incomplete temple to Artemis, and that's what your works look like. As you stand before God, you are incomplete. And so how might they go about strengthening what remains? Well, he gives them... The answer, remember then, in verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember what you've received and heard. Roughly a generation prior, they had received the gospel through an uncompromising faith in Christ alone. That's the only way Christ would commend them for their reception of him, because there was a genuine and a true Faith and repentance represented in that generation. Can they remember being broken by their sin? Can they pass on that same gospel message to their children? Do they recall finding Christ's life and death all sufficient? They needed to remember that. Remember what they had received and heard and then keep it. Keep the gospel at the heart of their community as it was from the beginning. They have allowed many things now, apparently, to crowd Christ out of the central spot. They're on the verge of losing Christ altogether, of his glory departing from Sardis. And so this means they will swiftly need to return to him and to repent of their compromise. They must be enlightened and enabled to heed the Spirit's warning. If not, there will be consequences, right? If, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. If you do not wake up, Jesus will come against you like a thief. We often associate this language with Christ's second coming, but the second coming is not conditioned upon the repentance of believers. We don't know when he will return. This is an immediate consequence that awaits should they remain in their state of compromise, Christ will come and and destroy their church. So Sardis had appeared impregnable. There was a, uh, their fortress looked strong. They really only had one point of access to the city. Every other side of of the city was surrounded by great cliffs, 1,500 foot cliffs. 
so they, they thought, unless you came from that one angle, you couldn't, you couldn't conquer them, couldn't get into the city. But on two separate occasions, the city had been attacked and defeated. Prior to this letter being written, the attackers came while the city slept at night. They found a way to scale those giant cliffs. And so in one case, as few as a dozen soldiers were able to come in through the wall where there was no, where no guards were stationed and breach the city and allow for it to be conquered. Their, their appearance of strength gave them this false sense of, of security. It wasn't supported by reality. And so the church would have a similar history if they did not wake up, if they were not vigilant with what remained. Christians in Sardis might have to look They might have looked spiritually mature on the outside, but they were dying on the inside. It would have made sense if this church avoided persecution because they didn't commend anything that contradicted the cultural practices. It made sense for them to look strong and healthy on the outside. The only church that received no opening commendation from Christ also appears to have received no condemnation from the culture. Apparently, the Christianity that was represented by the church in Sardis posed no threat to the idolatry and worldliness of the city. They were at peace with the world, which left them at odds with Christ. Something had to change. And that's where we come to in verses four through six. There's hope for true believers to receive the indelible name of the conquerors. It's the second part of your outline there, the indelible name of the conquerors. There was a small group of people who have not, so- <clears throat> excuse me, who have not soiled their garments. We see the same words translated defiled. The idea of having soiled garments is being defiled. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 8, 7 with reference to eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. And it's found again in Revelation 14, verse 4 with reference to sexual immorality. So the idea of having soiled garments is linked to the same exact sins that the previous churches were guilty of. The implication seems to be that they faced the same challenges in Sardis as well. The false teachers are not mentioned here because they had already been victorious there. They had thoroughly destroyed this church with compromise. Only a few had kept themselves clean by rejecting the false teaching and had, that had defiled most of the church. It is this worthy few who will walk in white with Jesus. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, verse four, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. These are the worthy few who walk in white with Jesus. The the color of their garments indicates that they have been washed pure by the blood of the lamb. We'll see that in Revelation 7. Verse 14, these believers will have access to the tree of life. That's their hope, depicted in Revelation 22, verse 14. They are worthy because they are united to Christ by faith. That's what makes them worthy. 
the reception of the gospel, the thing that they are called to remember, to hold on to. They're not worthy because of themselves, of what they've done or what they've accomplished. They're worthy because of what Christ has accomplished for them, the garments that they have received from him. They walk contrary to the culture, not in order to be saved, but in response to their salvation. And so they are the ones who conquer. They're the ones that will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is Christ's promise to them that they would conquer. The conquerors are likewise clothed in white garments. God will give them pure garments, which represent the righteous acts of the saints. That's the description in Revelation 19, verse 8. So there's a, a couple of allusions here to the Old Testament that are worth pointing out. First, we see echoes of Joshua, the high priest, in Zechariah chapter 3, who's described as standing in filthy garments before the throne of God. And Satan is next to him, accusing him of his guilt. And it's apparent that Satan and his accusations have merit. He's, he's standing in filth. He has a sin-stained robe all around him. He is not worthy to stand before the throne of God as he is. But the angel of the Lord has the garments removed from Joshua and he calls this the removal of his iniquities from him. That the angel of the Lord is taking away his iniquities that he might receive pure vestments, that he might be clothed in a white robe. And there's also a connection here to Daniel chapter 11 and 12, which refers to this end-time tribulation that purifies the saints so that they are made white. In both cases, both allusions, there's this passive receiving of God clothing the person. Clothing Joshua, he is, he is clothed. He's not clothing himself. The image of the saints in the tribulation are made white. They're not making themselves white. They're not cleaning off their own filth. They're made clean. So Michael the angel promises the deliverance of everyone whose name shall be found in the book of life. So in that Daniel 11 and 12 passage, you have both allusions here, both to the, them being clothed in white and to their names being written in the book of life. Both promises that Jesus gives to the church in Sardis, to the, specifically to those who conquer. So Jesus promises the conquerors that they will never be blotted out of the book of life. The, the membership rolls in heaven where their names are written. They'll never be erased. This idea of the indelible name of the conquerors. Indelible means to not be able to be forgotten or removed from memory. The names of those who conquer will never be erased. If your name is written on that book, it will have been written before you were ever born. And it can never be removed. As we considered in Sunday school this morning, we are more than conquerors in Christ who loves us. 
So like many of the warning passages in Hebrews, this text shows that you can belong to an earthly church and not have your name written in the heavenly book of life. You can have your name on the membership rolls of this church and not have your name written in the book of life. Many will credibly profess faith but not genuinely possess faith. On the other hand, those whose names are known in heaven will never be blotted out of that book. Instead, Jesus will confess their name before his Father and angels. And again, this applies to everyone who is enabled to read and hear the Spirit's words. Jesus calls the spiritually dead to wake up, and he promises eternal life to all who conquer. In six. 16 AD, the city of Sardis was invaded and destroyed by Persia. All of the inhabitants were scattered, and the remains that we see uh, even today, there was a, a Christian chapel in the southeast corner of the precincts of the temple of Artemis. So the area that was designated for the worship of Artemis was now being repurposed for the for use by the Christian church. There's even evidence as well of another structure, a church structure, Christian church, near the temple of Sybil. So their hope seems to have outlasted the idolatry, the the remnant of conquerors in Sardis. It does appear held fast to the truth. They remembered the gospel message they had received. They kept God central and repented of their compromise, and Christ was faithful to fulfill his promise to grant them eternal life. Christ alone offers us the white garments that we need. You may be clothed in garments that have been stained by the world. Maybe you feel unworthy to stand before the throne of God, incapable of even speaking your own name. The glorious truth we have from this passage is that when you place your faith in Christ, he is the one who will confess your name before his Father on your behalf. He's the one who removes your shame. He's the one who makes you worthy to receive his promises and inheritance. He's the reason why we're filled with so much hope in the midst of darkness. We have an advocate with the Father who ever lives to intercede for us. Let's go to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these precious promises that even to a, a church that was dead in rebellion, that had very little to commend, receives this hope, this hopeful command, if they would simply turn from their sin and turn to Christ, if they would receive the gospel that was held out to them. They would have their robes exchanged, their filthy garments would be exchanged for the righteous garments that were offered by Christ. And they could stand before the throne in confidence, boldly recognizing that they had a right to be there because of what Christ has done. Lord, remind us of that even now as we feel 
our minds and our hearts with the, the response in this song as we remind, are, are reminded of our own proneness to wander. Lord, give us that confidence that we can all have in Christ alone. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.